0: Thank you, Becky, for reminding us of the greatness of our God. And to Him be all glory and praise in our lives individually and in our life as a church. We want to be a church that fulfills our calling to be men and women who are committed first and foremost to the glory of God. Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 6. Last week, we spent time looking at verses 1 through 6 and then 16 through 18. And I was led, I believe, for us to look at specifically the matter of prayer, realizing that when Jesus said, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed of them. And then he gave examples as it related to almsgiving and to prayer. Into fasting, he did assume that we as his disciples would engage in almsgiving, we would pray, and we would from time to time fast. So we're going to look together this morning at what is commonly called the Lord's Prayer, and it's really not the Lord's Prayer, he's the one who gave it to us, that we as his disciples might have a manner or pattern of prayer for ourselves to follow. But the real Lord's Prayer, if you wanted to look it up, not right now necessarily, but in the 17th chapter of John's Gospel, it's a great insight, a really opportunity that has been opened to us to see Jesus in praying to his Father before he left earth via the cross and resurrection. So let's read the passage that we're going to look at in some detail from Matthew 6, beginning with verse 5 going through verse 14. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret, Will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then in this way Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. That's a good place to stop. From 1952 to 1970, every Wednesday afternoon, I don't know which of the major networks, there were only three at the time, carried The Art Linkletter House Party in the afternoon. you remember those? Well, some of you do, some of you don't even know because you weren't born until after 1970 or you were too young to remember it. But on Wednesday afternoons, Linkletter did what was far and away the most popular thing he did in the entire week. He had a panel of children, grade school aged, and he would interview them. It was an impromptu interview. Now, I'm sure they were screened before they were asked to be on the program, but the questions were not known that were going to be asked of them. I'm going to share a few of the questions from Mr. Linkletter and the answers which he received from these children. The first is, a little boy was asked the question, What are you thankful for? And he said, America? America? And then Mr. Linkletter said, What is an American? And the boy said, Someone who lives in California. (laughs) Now, we who are Texans might strongly disagree with that, right? Or perhaps you're from another state and would disagree with that. Another boy, not in the same series of interviews, but another day, was asked the question, Who's the most important man in America? And the lad said, George Washington. And then Art asked him, Who is his wife? And he said, Miss America. <laughs> right. That's awesome. There was a young lady who was interviewed, and Link Linkletter asked her this question, What is your idea of the perfect husband? She says, A man who makes a lot of money, loves horses, and lets you have 22 children. <laughs> and then... Mr. Linkletter responded by saying, what do you want to do when you grow up? And she said, be a nun. <laughs> I don't know if she had 22 children in her family or not, but probably she had a Roman Catholic background. <laughs> Maybe not. No offense to the Roman Catholics in the room for sure. And the last one I'll cite was a question which he asked to a boy similar to the last question he asked the girl I mentioned just a moment ago. The question was, what do you want to do when you grow up? And the lad said, a bus driver or an airplane pilot? And then Linkletter ask him this question. He said, what if you were flying an airplane and all of a sudden the power went out because the plane had lost all four of its engines? And without skipping a beat, the boy said, Our Father who in heaven, hallowed be thy name. This boy had it right, didn't he? He had it right. It's true. Well, we looked at the passage in Luke, which has a shortened version of what we have in the Gospel of Matthew as it relates to what we know as the Lord's Prayer. Now, the Luke version is not shorter because Luke missed something. It was a different setting in which Jesus taught this version of what might be described as the Lord's Prayer. And remember what this disciple asked? What was his question of Jesus? Teach us. Obviously, the disciples had been discussing The prayer life of Jesus. They had watched Jesus pray. Jesus modeled everything for them that He intended for them to do themselves. Because in that same part of the book of Luke, Jesus talks about a disciple. He calls them students or pupil. And then He says, when a student or pupil is fully trained, he will be like his teacher. Notice, he will be like his teacher. His being will be an imitation, no cheap imitation, a genuine imitation of the person of Jesus Christ. Teach us to pray. I can't tell you how many times I've had people come to me in the years that I've served as a pastor and ask me the question. I'm talking about people who were not on the fringes of the church, many of them really very active in the church. This was some sense, a critique of my own teaching And this is what they would say, to whom are we to pray? Well, Jesus answers the question, doesn't He, in this model prayer. Father, that's the one to whom we are to pray. And I'd like to add to that what Paul writes in Ephesians 2, verse 18, for even further clarification. The Word of God says, through Jesus, we both have access by the Spirit To the Father when we pray. So you see, each member of the Trinity is involved in the matter of praying. The terminal of our prayer is to God the Father. We're praying to the Father. This is what Jesus teaches us here in the so-called Lord's Prayer. But we are to pray through Jesus... He's our mediator who lives to make intercession for us. He's our high priest. He's the one who petitions the Father on our behalf. We go through Him because we do not have it within ourselves to go to Him. We pray in His name. But it's by the power of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, we are told, is the one who is capable of removing what ignorance there may be in our minds about praying. And He does just that, doesn't He, in these teachings that we're looking at today from Luke's Gospel and in a moment more fully from the Gospel of Matthew. The Holy Spirit's the one who has inspired the Scriptures. And it is He who is our teacher through the Scriptures. So we are so blessed to be taught to whom we're to pray, And then in this model prayer, this disciples' prayer is what I like to think of what is called the Lord's Prayer. He gives us a pattern to follow. The first part of it, the first three petitions, are in relationship to God and have to do with glorifying God. That's always the place to begin whenever we're doing any kind of worship. It's to the Lord. It's not about ourselves, is it? And then the last three petitions, have to do with ourselves and other people. And we're not going to get to those today. Next week we'll look at those in some detail. They're very important. But this morning we're going to look at this matter of our relating to God first in our prayer life. Jesus warned His disciples, and in so doing He warns us not to pray like two groups of people. Not to pray like the hypocrites. What were the hypocrites all about? It was about a show for them, it was about their getting the applause of men rather than the approval of God. And so Jesus is very careful to say, don't pray like the hypocrites. Look at verse 5 again. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. These people were always on stage when it came to the expression of their so-called religious beliefs. And look at verse 6 because he says not only were you not to pray like the hypocrites, but we're not to pray like the Gentiles. He says in verse 6, But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. When Jesus says meaningless repetition... He uses a word that only Jesus uses in the New Testament. But come to find out, this is not only the only time this word is used in the New Testament, but surveying all the literature that we have from this era in history in the language of the New Testament, which is Greek, we can find no other mention of this world word. There's been a lot of speculation about what it means. There was a king of Cyrene by the name of Batus, and Batus was a man who stuttered or stammered. And the word translated, meaningless repetition, is a word which has the sound of Batus in it. Batalageo is the word. That was one suggestion, Erasmus made that suggestion. Another suggestion was it had to do with another man with the same name, Batus, who was a poet but a very wordy poet who just used way too many words. So there is some difference of opinion about what is meant here. But the idea of meaningless is a very important idea and the primary meaning. Let's stop here let me ask this question. Is Jesus against our repeating things to Him when we pray? Is there any evidence in Scripture that Jesus would actually encourage us to be repetitive? Well, yes, there is. In fact, when we were reading from the 11th chapter of Luke, if we had read further in the Gospel of Matthew in the 7th chapter, Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek. And you will find knock and the door will be open. And the construction of each of those commands would indicate repeated asking, repeated seeking, repeated knocking. So the Lord wants us to be persistent in our praying. The idea that is emphasized here is the word meaningless, thoughtless. And this happens even... In our church, which is not a liturgical church, I remember growing up as a boy that there was Deacon's Row on the church that I was a part of. I was a part of a wonderful church. I was nurtured by so many people from the time I can remember and before. By the time I was 18 months old, I was going, my parents were taking me every day to the place of worship. But when these men would come, They'd march in. It was, a, it was a ritual, really. They'd marched in with the pastor, and they took their seat. I mean, there were I, I didn't ever count them, at least I don't remember if I did. I might have. But it was a long line of deacons, and one would give the offertory prayer every week. And almost invariably, the same closing would be used. And Lord, bless the gift and the giver. Thank you very much. Some of you came from a Baptist background also. <laughs> Well, that became just sort of a mindless way to signal the end of the praying. It probably began as something that was wholesome and correct, but it ended up being just a ritual. That would be meaningless repetition. In the Roman Catholic tradition, there are Catholics who use the rosary. Now, I have never used the rosary, and I would imagine there might be some good use of it. But what happens many times, it's just a ritual for the person. Because when we learn something, it's embedded in our minds. I'm talking about something we can say. Then you can say it without even thinking about it. I've recognized this in my own life. I've memorized some Scripture, and I've said them so many times. I don't even have to think. I just, boom, there it is. But in saying it, many times I get nothing from it whatsoever. Because I'm just saying it from rote memory without any thought. And the idea that Jesus is combating here when He says, we're not to pray like the hypocrites. We know that's don't put on a show. We're not to pray like the Gentiles because it was their habit just to say things over and over and over again. And sometimes, even when we quote Scripture, we can do that. We do it in our prayers, of course. In the secular world... Some of you know who Maharishi Mahesh Yogi was. He's no longer living. But he introduced a form of religion, if you will, he being a Hindu himself, called Transcendental Meditation. And the title of that movement explains itself. Something that we can do to transcend this world, and we meditate to make that Transcendent act occur. And it's where you just sort of empty your mind, empty, and you get a mantra, and you say it quietly over and over and over again until you reach a place of relaxation and freedom from the cares of the world. The yogi himself said he wished he had not used the word meditation. I don't know exactly why he said that when he was forming this movement which bears the name Transcendental Meditation. But the meditation that the Bible talks about is anything but mindless and meaningless. In fact, the Bible's idea of meditation is to not simply think about God, but to meditate on what God has communicated to us in the Word of God of God. The Bible says, Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. The word meditate was used outside the Old Testament in the language of the Old Testament to describe a cow chewing her cud. And we know... There are several stomachs in a cow. And the cow takes food in, digests it to a degree in the first stomach, regurgitates it, does that over and over again. That's the idea of what meditation is to be like. We mull it over, we chew it. I'm talking about the Scripture because the Scripture is God's vehicle for revealing Himself and His will to us. That's what real meditation is. So we're not to be... People who engage in our prayers just meaninglessly repeating something. Actually, the words of the Lord's Prayer could become that. I can't tell you how many times I've just said it without thinking about what it means. And that's why I'm taking some of your time this morning to look a little more closely at how we're to come before God in this matter. Jesus gives proper order in this prayer. God is the one by God's own purpose to be glorified in our praying, not ourselves. We are, in the second part, going to learn about how we are utterly, totally dependent upon God for our food, which covers a wider range than just what we eat, but other things in the world order. Forgiveness and guidance and protection. There's no use, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, there's no use of the pronoun I in the Lord's Prayer. Have you ever noticed that? There's use of our, plural, pronoun, and us. And what this does, it builds into praying the way Jesus would have us to pray. It builds into us a certain level of selflessness. In the book of James, the Bible says you ask and do not receive in prayer because you ask with the wrong motive that you may spend the request on yourself. In other words, we have the capacity, and it doesn't have to be substantiated, it's true in our lives, of asking for our own selfish purposes. Is it wrong to ask God for anything that you might need, though? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But the thing that combats our becoming selfish in our praying, you remember Janis Joplin? Some of you do. Many of you do. You're in my age category. Around She had one song. I don't remember all of her songs. She was quite popular. She said, Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? That's Mike Wood's rendition of it, of course. You've never heard that. Now, is it wrong to ask God for a car? No, if you need it, is it wrong for you to drive a Mercedes Benz? Not if you own one, for sure, already, but maybe you want one. There's nothing wrong with having nice things. What becomes wrong when you're selfish in your asking? Let's say that you and I both needed a car. And the Lord put us together and we're praying for each other. And we say, Lord, would you give him a car? And Lord, would you be so kind if I can humbly ask that I might have a car? And this friend of mine's praying in the same manner. And my friend gets a car. And I'm still on foot. Am I happy when that happens? Well, I don't know. <laughs> but I should be happy for my friend, shouldn't I? This is the whole idea. And whatever we think about prayer and about this model prayer, one thing I should add is that wherever I have gone in the world, and I haven't traveled that much. I've been to the continent of Africa probably four or five times, been to South America, Mexico, been to Europe, and interacted with brothers and sisters in Christ there. But wherever I go, we do have a common prayer, don't we? A common pattern of praying. Sure. It's right here in what we call the Lord's Prayer. So we need to remember prayer is to be sincere and thoughtful to be real prayer. Look at verse seven. This is puzzled and troubled a lot of people. Actually, let's get verse eight. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. A lot of people wonder, well, if He knows what I need before I ask Him, why does He want me to pray? Well, let me give you the answer that I'm confident of as being the right answer to this. Because when you need something, and it's not readily available, and... You go to the Lord, you're drawing nearer to the Lord. I can tell you, without getting into detail, there have been three times in my life when I was literally begging God for an answer to prayer. He already knew what I needed. And I'm here to gratefully report that God provided, and then some, what I needed. But it took a while in time for me to get the answer to that prayer. And when I was being considered to become pastor of the church here, 26 years ago, about this month is when that started, and as I interacted with the committee here, and the committee said, we believe you're the person to come here. And I was really excited but I did not want to leave where I was in Arlington, Texas, to come here if God didn't want me to. This says a lot about me probably in the sense of not really hearing carefully. But I asked God and I ask God, Lord, please confirm to me by your Holy Spirit through the Word of God, whether I'm to leave this church where I've been for almost 10 years to go to the church in El Paso. It took a while for me to get the answer. But let me tell you what happened. I grew closer to the Lord because I had to come back and ask Him and ask Him and ask Him and ask Him. Sometimes when we have things we need answers for, we don't have time to wait because the situation is so dire in that moment. We just have to cry out to God, and God does answer often like that. But most decisions which we make in our lives are not spur-of-the-moment kinds of things, especially the big ones. And so what it does, it draws us closer to the Lord. It causes us, when we're in crisis, to look into the Word of God, and we find promises which God has made to us, and we claim those promises as it relates to issues in our lives. And we trust God and we cry out to God. Here again, we're drawing closer to God. But our faith grows because faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of God. We go to the Bible to see what direction God would give us through the over 7,000 promises in the Bible that are relevant to you and me as God's children. This is real prayer. So in this verse, so where it says, Your father knows what you need before you ask him, in this whole matter of teaching us how to pray in this section, we come to the Lord and we let him know what we would like. Or in some cases, Lord, don't you know I need this? Have you ever been that desperate before God? I need this, Lord. We don't come before Him to give Him an intelligence briefing. It's actually an intelligent conversation with God about matters of mutual concern. His glory and His care for His children. So, we need to understand that God isn't ignorant about what our needs are needing our instruction. Nor is God hesitant that we need to just arm twist God. Not at all. Let me just mention a couple of three places in Scripture where we get insight into this. In Jeremiah... 33.3, 33.3, three, God says, call to me and I will answer you. He's talking to His children here, okay? Not just the general population. Call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. That's a promise from God. It's a command and a promise, isn't it? And this is a way we are to relate to our God. We are to come with confidence, the Bible says, before the throne of God, the throne of grace, So that in just the nick of time, is the language that the writer of Hebrews uses in chapter 4, just in the nick of time, at the eleventh hour many times, we will receive mercy that will help us in that situation. We have a high priest named Jesus Christ who intercedes for us. James chapter 4. I've already mentioned part of this verse. The second part, let me mention the first part of verse 2. James 4.2 says, you do not have because you do not ask. The Lord wants us to ask, but in such a way that's not self-centered, in such a way that will give glory to God. And God knows what our response will be if we get the request. Remember when Jesus healed the ten lepers? Do you remember those ten lepers got healed? That was quite a deal in their day because they were outcasts. Couldn't even go to the temple, couldn't do anything associated with relating to God, and only one came back and gave thanks. Many times we're like the other nine, aren't we? We ask God to do something, and that was a big something which those lepers asked. Jesus responded, but only one came back to say thanks. We need to have a mentality that discounts the possibility of God being our heavenly bellhop. He is not our servant. We are His servants. We're also His children, which is awesome. So let's look at these petitions in verses 9 and 10. Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. First of all, we are to address God properly. And this is not about etiquette. This is about knowing the God to whom we pray. Our God is not a god among many gods. He's not at the at the top of the food chain of all the deities in the universe. He is the only true God. All others are poor imitations of the one true God. We need to get to know the truth about this God. And the truth is revealed in this name, Father. The word which Jesus uses, which would have been used in His own home when He grew up as the first child of Mary and Joseph as His foster father, in that home in which He grew up, when He first addressed Joseph, He would have called Him Abba. That is Aramaic, the language of Jesus and the language of Israel at this time. It would have been that kind of language. And Abba is like Dada, actually. We're to have that kind of intimate relationship. As i thought back over the days of my life as the son of my father, I had the privilege of living to be 60 years old before my dad went to be with the Lord. And I would speak of him, when I would introduce him to others, I would say, this is my father, Odell Woods. But I never once remember calling him father into the end of our relationship when I was 60 years old. I always called him daddy. He was and is, in my mind, my daddy. That's the way I learned to address him. And it was a term of intimacy and endearment. Father was too formal. And what we need to understand is we need to hallow His name. I'm going to get to that in just a moment. I'm talking about the name of God as Father. But also, this word cries, it screams out to us, intimacy with God. The greatest need that anyone in the world needs is to know God. And to know Him in intimacy. To know Him as Father. Now, obvious differences exist between Him as our Father and we who are men who are fathers being fathers to our children. He's all-knowing. We are limited in our knowledge. He is all powerful. We are limited in our power. Fathers, Has it ever grieved your heart when your child needed something and you didn't have the capacity to give it to the child? Probably, if you've been a father for any length of time. Our hearts go out to our children. He is ever-present. We can only be one place at one time. We love our children so much that we would like to be with them all the time, don't we dads? But we can't. God is different, obviously, but there are some striking similarities. Our Father is, if not anything, He is this. He is a loving God. He loves us. Perfect love casts out fear. For the person who is not aware and receptive to the love of God has not been perfected by love. Behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us in 1 John chapter 3 that we might be called the children of God. Think about that. We're not simply His servants, we are His children, and we have all that pertains to being His child. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Our value is clear. We know the value of anything owned by another person by the price which that person pays for that which they have purchased. What did God the Father pay for you and for me? He paid the life of His Son. That's how much He loves us. He is our Father. And we as fathers, we love our children. Albeit imperfectly, but we love our children. We provide for our children. We have an ear to lend to them, to listen to them when they are in need. We are their friend, but we are their disciplinarians too. In that, we are like our Heavenly Father, who in love, the Scripture says, He disciplines us because He loves us. Discipline of God is educative in nature. It's not punitive. He's not interested in punishing us. He punished Jesus on the cross. So we would not suffer His anger and wrath. But He does, in love, discipline us. There are many ways that we as dads can imitate Jesus. In fact, this verse is found in Ephesians 5.1. Listen, fathers. be imitators of God. Now listen to the last part. As beloved children. We're loved by God. But we're to imitate the way in which He loves us. And so far, I've been a father now for 41, going on 42 years. And... I still am a father. I still love my children. My love grows for them, if anything, the longer I live. And we love the Father because He first loved us. We're to hallow the name of the Father. What does that mean? It means to sanctify. What does that mean? It means to set apart. His name is the name above all names. We set Him apart. Here's... Maybe a better image for us to get our minds fixed on. Make God central in our lives. That we refer everything to Him. He is our Father. He is the centerpiece of our lives. Everything else radiates off of our relationship with Him. We make Him central. We hallow His name. As I've mentioned already, the world's greatest need is to know God. Jesus says this, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. When asked by Philip to show Philip and the other eleven apostles to ask, show us the Father, he said, it's enough for us. Just show us the Father, Jesus. And Jesus says, "Have have I been so long with you and you still don't know who I am? If you have seen Me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is the visible expression of the invisible God, is what Colossians 1 tells us. What are some of the hindrances to our knowing God? Well, the biggest one is unbelief. We can't know the Lord until we fully trust in Him. That's a big step to go from a place of just wondering whether Jesus is indeed the way, the truth, and the life, and giving your life to Christ, and then becoming a child of God. But as many as receive Christ, to them He gave the right to become. Not everyone is a child of God. Created by God, yes. Potential children of God, probably. But we need to be men and women who take that step in faith to the Lord. Another hindrance is after we come to know the Lord. This is what Jesus says in John fourteen twenty one: He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will reveal myself to him. I.e., let him or her know me. I have to be in obedience. Now, the context of that statement, listen very carefully, please. The context of the statement... Uh, He who has my commandments and keeps them is he who loves me, is the context of the commandment in chapter 13 of John, where Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. It's expressed practically in the way in which we care for our brothers and sisters in Christ. So, that's the background of that. And another hindrance is... We get so wrapped up in our religion. This is particularly an occupational hazard for me. Doing all the things that are necessary to fulfill what I think are my responsibilities as a pastor. But this is true of many of you. I know many of you, and I'm so grateful I know many of you well. And in this room, there are many men and women You're not pastors per se, but you are ministers for Jesus Christ wherever you are. In your business, in your schoolroom, where you teach, in your home, where you serve as a so-called housewife. It's much more than that. You're a leader in your family of your children. But what we need to understand is that we get too busy sometimes in rituals of religion. And we miss their first love. We don't put Jesus where he belongs. We have chosen lesser things to do that. Well, some people say the Old Testament God is different from the New Testament God. We just throw away the Old Testament. Well, beware of doing that. Because all Scripture is God-breathed. That's what the Bible says. Useful for teaching, rebuking correcting and training in righteousness so that the man and woman of God may be fully equipped, prepared for every good work to glorify the Lord. Let me read one verse out of the book of Jeremiah that resonates at this point. Let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, and listen to these traits of God, who exercise loving kindness. This is the Old Testament word which really combines our word grace and mercy into one. Justice and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Did Jesus reflect these traits? Was He loving kind? Sure. Was He just? Yes. If I remember correctly, on two occasions, when the people who were in charge of The temple area made money off people who came from all over the world just outside the temple because if they had done it inside the temple proper, they would have desecrated the temple. But it was okay because the funds which they made, a portion of it went to the priests in the temple. It was a big business deal. But what happened is the Gentiles who had become interested in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because they had rubbed shoulders with some true Jews who had circumcised hearts, descendants of Abraham to be sure, but circumcised hearts. And they wanted to know this one true God because they lived in a world of many gods, none of whom had any power. But they'd seen the power of God demonstrated in the lives of these people. Well, those people obstructed those people who were not Jews who had come, in some cases, over a thousand miles just to come to the temple on pilgrimage so maybe they could meet this God. But they couldn't for all the cacophony and all the transactions which were going on in that area. And Jesus twice ran them out after fashioning a whip of cords. Jesus was just and righteous He insisted upon righteousness, even in this passage that we know as the Sermon on the Mount. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is very interested in our righteousness. But He is our righteousness. This is a secret. Do you know that? You do not have any righteousness in yourself, nor do I. The book says... In the book of Romans, chapter 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 64, the Bible says, All my righteous acts are like filthy rags before God, which would repulse God, by the way. All of those things. So, Jesus is representative of the God of any era, of any testament, for sure. We're to be adoring children, like an adoring child's response to his daddy or his mommy. We fathers and mothers, I might add, have been given a great responsibility in child-rearing, and we have the greatest example imaginable in God our Father. Here's the second part of this petitioning of God. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're to ask that God's kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. Where is the kingdom of God? Jesus was asked this question where is your kingdom, Jesus? Now remember, we know Jesus is God man. He is God incarnate. And Jesus says, My kingdom's not of this world. Another group of people asked Jesus, Where is your kingdom? And he said, my kingdom is within you. Meaning, in living in those people. Anywhere that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is an expression of his kingdom in large part today. Because the majority of the people present this morning want Jesus to be Lord of your life. Not just a part of your life. Not someone who is just going to fix your life up. But someone who you want to orchestrate your life. And you yield to him. And you recognize Him. You have set Him apart as Lord in your heart. May your kingdom come on earth as in heaven. And listen, it's to begin with me. I've got to deal with whether He's king of my life or am I reserving part of my life for myself. It always begins with the individual. This petition is the motivation for missions. Missions. It's the motivation for sharing Christ with people. Jesus said, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the remotest part of the earth. This is our mission. What drives us? What drives us is the Spirit of God living in us to take the gospel to other people. Who would risk their lives for a farce? Who would go into a nation where you don't know the customs, you don't know the language, you're considered an intruder, your life is at risk in such a situation. Why would you do that? Well, the proper motivation, and the only one that's legitimate, of course, is that we want to see His kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Through the preaching and teaching of God's Word, This kingdom is already here, but it's not here in full. There's coming a day. We don't know when. Jesus says, no man knows the hour. Not even he in his human state knew the hour. He knows now and he knew before. But that part was surrendered in his becoming one of us. And by implication, when it says, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven... It means your kingdom and no other's kingdom. The Lord has a rival. Satan is the rival. The Bible talks about the kingdom of darkness. The Bible talks about how Satan is the ruler, the king of this world. I'm not talking about the earth physically or the universe physically, but the way that things are and the way the world operates. And in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, the Word of God tells us the three basic characteristics. The lust of the eyes, which has to do with wanting things. The lust of the flesh, which has to do with wanting things as it relates to the necessities or those God-given drives in our lives. And when we get outside the parameters which God has established for the exercise of those Built-in drives, then we are in sin. We're living like the world. And then the boastful pride of life, this is the one that probably plagues all of us. Where we want to be like the Pharisees. We want to say, look at me. Look at me. Look at me instead of worshiping the Lord. We're asked for the kingdom to come. His kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Here's the last thing. We're to ask that God's will be done. On earth, as it is in heaven. And here again, it has to start with Mike Woods. I have to be a man who wants to do the will of God. The immediate context of this teaching, what is it? It's a Sermon on the Mount, isn't it? It's a good place to start. It's a very, very daunting piece of Scripture. But it's doable. Why? The Lord gives us the power... What was our verse for today? I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Who is it who strengthens us? Jesus Christ lives within us. When we receive Him, He lives in our lives. The whole Bible is to be informing us as we read the Scripture. Anything in the Bible that's commanded to us, we're to seek to obey by His strength. Jesus said, in Hebrews 10:17, "I have come to do the will of God. Jesus lives in us. He wants to live through us as well." This is not an impossible life. As my mentor was fond of telling me, he said, "Mike, the Christian life is impossible. But with Christ, it is Him possible. Kind of hokey, I know, but it's true. Christ in us, the Bible says, is the hope of glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be here together to worship you, and we pray you would really impress these things on our minds. We want to know how to pray. We want to glorify you in our prayer life, Lord. We want to grow to know you more. We know that we'll never reach a time in our lives where we don't need to grow more and know you better. Thank you that that possibility is open to us, not just in this life, but strongly suggested that that will be the case in eternity. Thank you, Lord, that the secret things of yours belong to you, but everything which has been revealed, including these verses that we looked at today, belong to us and to our children, to the hundredth generation. We thank You for this. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. God bless you.